Well, um, praise the Lord, you guys. I'm so excited that we're here. Um, you know, my heart is just filled with so many different emotions today. Uh, obviously, um, Heritage Grace is starting off uh, as a church plant, and we have a context. We have a, we have a story to, to tell, you know, and how we started. And um, this church was birthed uh, because... Uh, of my ministry at Sovereign Joy Community Church, another church that I, that I planted in Fort Worth. And um, uh, the Lord uh, has led us to plant another church. And uh, our congregation went through a very difficult time in the, the events that sort of led up to planting this church. And I don't want to ignore that. I know that uh, we went through a hard time uh, just to get to this point right now. And uh, I just want to really just remind you all today of the faithfulness of God, that God is faithful to us and God will be faithful to us. God has already expressed His sovereign faithfulness to us and just bringing us this far. So I am so blessed and I am so confident at what God is going to do through Heritage Grace. And uh, all of you, all of the families here, you're all to be highly commended uh, for your faithfulness, for your willingness, for your, your, your faith in Christ and trusting Him and coming here. And so I want to thank you personally, just as your pastor, as one of the pastors here, thank you so much for your commitment, for your support, uh, because without the church, uh, there is no church. If I was just standing in this room by myself, you'd have a pastor and a couple music stands and a Bible, and that's about it. So we need people. That's what makes the church is the people. And so I'm so blessed that you guys have made the commitment, that you made the drive, that you've committed to drive as, as, as long as the Lord has that for us, as long as we're going to commute, um, I know that the Lord is going to strengthen us and give us the endurance that we need. And I know that God is going to enter our, our, all of our lives into a season of blessing. And as we just continue to do what the Word of God calls us to do, which is to abide in His Word. Jesus said, abide in me, abide in my Word, and you will bear much fruit. It is the inevitable, it is the natural consequence of abiding in Christ that we will bear much fruit. We might go some services with, you know, PowerPoint not working right, the sound not working right, you know, we're struggling to find a worship leader for that week. None of that matters. What matters is that though the, the form of the, of the church can change week after week, Though you might see me up here one week with a guitar and then preaching on the same Sunday, or you might see Andrew up here with Keith by himself, or you might see a full band up here. They've got beautiful equipment, nice uh, uh, drum set. I play the drum, so that's a nice set. I just saw that. It's beautiful. We have, we have everything we need here for a full band, but you know what? I'll be really honest with you guys. I am blessed at this little moment of authenticity. That, that, that we can be reminded, and I hope we will never forget, that we are not professionals. That the church is not a corporation. I am not a CEO. This is the church of the living God. And though the form may change, brothers and sisters, the function of the church can never change. And so I'm excited because I'm I'm surrounded, hopefully, by a group of families that is committed to the same things that I'm committed to, which is to making the Word of God preeminent in everything that we do. That the Word of God is supreme, it is central, it is uppermost in our affections, in our priorities, and so that we will have a true church so long as we align ourselves with what the Word of God teaches a true church is. And I am confident, I, I bless God that He has done such a quick work, but such a good work. We already have a solid uh, staff, if you would, a leadership team. We have our two deacons, Chris Matthews, Kevin Sauberger, elders, myself, and Pastor Allen, Allen Boley. And uh, pray for us that as the weeks roll on, that the Lord would just unite our hearts together, that we would be as one man contending for the faith, and that our church would be united with one voice that we would magnify God in everything that we do. I'm so excited. I wanted to also just express my deepest, deepest gratitude 
Uh, Pastor Mark is here, so I can thank him directly. I wasn't expecting him to be here, but since he's here, I can, I can say thank you right to his face. But uh, we owe Water's Edge a great debt of gratitude for opening up their facility to us. And I just want to reiterate what Alan said. We need to take care of this church uh, like it's God's church because it is God's church. If it wasn't for him, they, Water's Edge wouldn't even have this building. So we need to take care of this building like it's God's church. And we need to really be... Uh, 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 we need to strive for excellence in our reputation and in our integrity and in how we treat this building and what we do here, okay? I trust that you will. I know you will. Um, also, I just pray for your patience. I pray for your prayers. I ask for your prayers. Ironically, I'm, we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture today where the Apostle Paul is asking for prayer. And if the, if the mighty Apostle Paul needs prayer, I need prayer. You need prayer. We need prayer as a church. And so please be praying for one another. But be praying for the pastors. Be praying for the deacons. Be praying for us that God will give us the wisdom that we need, the wisdom that is beyond our years so that we know how to navigate through ministry's difficult decision-making process and all of that. But mo above everything, pray that we would just be dominated by a love for Christ that our hearts would be dominated for a love and a passion for God's glory in His church, in a pursuit of holiness in our church. Just pray for us. I covet your prayers, and I can go on and on and on with all these preliminary introductory comments. The last one that I'm going to make is that we are going to start, uh, we're going we're gonna to start um, a new book of the Bible next week. Not this week. I was tempted just to jump right in and, and just go from the very start, but um, we won't do that. Next week, Lord willing, we will begin the, second, the, the, the book of 2 Corinthians. It's that book that a lot of times get overshadowed by the 1 Corinthians letter. You know, 1 Corinthians is so magnanimous with all of its issues, all of its controversy, all of the, the problems going on in, in 1 Corinthians. It sometimes tends to dominate 2 Corinthians. But as I sat through uh, 2 Corinthians and read my commentaries and did my introductions and I looked over the content of that letter, um, I can tell you that we're in for a feast in 2 Corinthians. So just pray that God, again, would just lead me in my studies and so that I can provide us with, with all the sustenance that is found in the Word of God. But we will start 2 Corinthians next week, okay? This week, I want you to turn with me to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 is where we're going to be uh, this week, okay? 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, we're going to go all the way down to verse 5, okay? And what I want to talk about today is because this passage has been something that I've been meditating over and over and over again of things that I want for our church. And so I entitled the sermon today, The Aspirations of a True Church. The Aspirations of a True Church. These are aspirations that any true church should want in their church. And so I pray that the Lord would bless us as we look at His Word um, let, let me read the text for us, and then we will begin. Beginning in verse 1, this is what the word of the Lord says. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you, and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from, from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you, that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Let's pray together. Well, Heavenly Father, we so desperately desire for you to have your way with us today. And if we don't have that desire, God, I pray that you would make that our desire. Father, who is sufficient for all of these things? 
Lord, I confess complete inadequacy. I confess that I am simply incapable of doing all that you command. And so I ask, Lord, for us, for me, and for us as a church, please strengthen us. We echo the prayer of the Apostle Paul here. Please protect us through all of life's trials, through all of the tribulations that any church goes through. Protect us as we go through growing pains. Protect us as we go through leadership pains. Protect us as we go through the pain that sin produces in any church. I pray, Father, that you would simply be magnified in our church. Be glorified. I pray that you would feed your people. God, we come here today and we confess we are hungry. We desire to see Jesus. And so many people, Lord, hear that it's been a while since they truly have been fed by your word. God, I pray that you would use your word today to alter our lives, change us, transform us, allow for your word to have its sanctifying and transforming effect in our lives that we would not be conformed to this world, but that we would be renewed in our mind according to your word. Please bless this passage of scripture today. Help us to take heed to all that your word contains. And it's in Christ Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. One quick um, thing that came to mind before we start. Is this being recorded? It is? Good. Good. Praise the Lord. Because I know if, I, we did, if we dropped the ball there, I would be in trouble right out of the gate. You know? By the way, please pray for the babies. Pray for Scott. He has done a marvelous job of throwing together a uh, website for us that is beyond anything I could have ever expected. Pray for Lisa. as She is our treasurer and going to be handling a lot of the financial aspects with us as a leadership team. Please pray for the Beatty family and pray for them because they are expecting a baby. So uh, God has just dropped a lot of things on their lap and uh, they need strength. Special grace, right? Greater grace. Amen. Well, again, uh, what we're looking at today is what I've entitled Aspirations of a True Church. And you can see these aspirations throughout this whole section. It's really a, a double prayer passage. It's kind of, it's put together with two bookends. Both of them have to do with prayer. Paul's prayer request of the church and then Paul's prayer for the church. That's how the passage is sort of built together. He begins by asking for prayer, and he closes with his own prayer for them. But I want you to see something about the nature of Paul's prayer request, and it contains our very first aspect, or our very first element of these aspirations, and that is gospel-centered ministry, a gospel-centered church. We can see the gospel-centered nature of Paul's prayer right here. Look at verse 1 again with me. He says, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified. An amazing prayer request. It's an interesting aspect to this chapter 3. Um, chapter 3 sort of comes in as uh, a closing statement. Paul is going to enumerate different things that he wants to sort of tack in at the end of everything he's covered so far. And in chapter 2, really Paul was developing his eschatology, right? He developed all his, his eschatological scheme of the end times. But then in chapter 3, he sort of backs up and he reminds the church of some things that are pressing on his heart. And I think that's what he's doing He's, he's reminding them that even in light of the eschatology that he's just laid out, he doesn't want them to overlook the fact that there's still a present life to live. Yes, according to, verse, uh, according to chapter 2, we will gain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a glorious truth 
to impact the church with that eschatological future, the glorious future, that we will gain the glory of Jesus Christ, our inheritance. You want to talk about a heritage of grace, glorification being that final installment of the grace of God in our salvation. But he backs up and he says, at the same time, there is a present need for the church. And the present desire of the Apostle Paul is centered around the concept of the Word of the Lord. And so we should also make note of the fact that for Paul, his prayer request is not selfish, is it? He doesn't begin to list off all of the different needs that he has in the ministry. Very easy for Paul to do that. Pray for me because uh, my body's breaking down. Pray for me because of some sickness or some ailment. Pray for me because of some persecution that I'm enduring right now or some imprisonment. But Paul backs up and a first priority, uppermost in Paul's priorities, is what happens to the Word of the Lord. That's his number one priority. And so when he talks about the Word of the Lord, if you go to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, because it's interesting that this phrase, the Word of the Lord, this is actually unique to the Thessalonian epistles. Paul doesn't use this phrase anywhere else. The Bible doesn't use this phrase really anywhere else. But in, Pauline, uh, in the Pauline literature, uh, not the Bible, but just in the Pauline text, I meant to say, it's unique to these two Letters, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And what I'm going to argue and submit to you is that that phrase, the Word of the Lord, is more than speaking about the Bible. He's speaking about the Gospel. 1st Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. Listen to what it says. He says, For the Word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Watch this. Your faith toward God has gone forth so that we don't have to say anything. We don't have to say anything. In other words, their testimony, their witness, their spreading of the gospel was so evident that Paul didn't have to say a word. The church was being the church. The church was evangelizing. The church was doing missionary activity. The church was discipling. The church was converting people. The church was reaching the lost and doing exactly what a good church is supposed to do. There's nothing sadder than a Christian or a church that doesn't get excited about the gospel. There's nothing sadder to me to think of a, of a Christian that doesn't get excited about evangelism, about the furtherance of the gospel. Many of you were there in my exposition of the book of Philippians, so that Philippians is called the epistle of joy, but another theme that dominates the book of Philippians so clearly is Paul's passion to see the gospel spread, constantly commending, constantly admonishing the Philippian church for the furtherance of the gospel. The Apostle Paul was always in that wartime mentality as a Christian. He didn't coast, right? He didn't live his life on cruise control. The Apostle Paul was always on a mission, and his mission was singular, and that is to spread the gospel. That is to take the name of Christ into any region that had not yet heard him. That missionary zeal prompted one commentator to say that many scholars are embarrassed by Paul's simple gospel zeal. They, be, they blush at just how evangelistic the Apostle Paul was. A lot of people like to study, uh, study Pauline theology. They like to read extensive volumes on Pauline thought. All the best authors out there, right? But very few people really want to do what Paul did. They love Paul as a thinker, but they don't love Paul as a doer. And too often in the church, we sort of settle for one side of Paul or the other. Either we want Paul the scholar or we want Paul the missionary. And, and rare, rare are those instances that bring us the whole Paul. 
the, the missionary Paul and the, the scholar Paul, the mind of Paul and the mission of Paul. But that's who Paul is. Paul is, Paul thought as hard as he labored. Paul thought as hard as he labored. But he would often rejoice and he would often stir the church. He would often stir the church up for more and more zeal towards the furtherance of the gospel. I love the gospel because it keeps us in a childlike state. That no matter how professional you get in your ministry, no matter how advanced you get in your exegesis or in your theology, the gospel boils you back down to a simple story that a five-year-old can tell us. That God so loved the world that He sent His Son to die so that believers would not perish but have everlasting life. I tell you, the gospel has such a humbling effect on us if we would but take heed to it. Paul loved the gospel in all of the different forms that it would come in. Sometimes the apostle Paul even rejoiced over the preaching of the gospel when it wasn't really done the way he would do it, right? Here's Paul, the expert not only at how you teach the gospel, how you extrapolate the theology and the doctrine of the gospel, but how you actually preach the gospel, how you advance the gospel. But listen to Paul's words in Philippians chapter 1, verse 18. The gospel, we could say the gospel generosity of Paul. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I will rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. In other words, it was so critical for the Apostle Paul to know that the gospel was taken to a sinner. The, 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 the idea of Christ crucified was presented. Was it presented exactly how he would have wanted it? Probably not. Could Paul have done a better job? Probably so. But he was willing to rejoice at the most minimalistic preaching of the gospel. As long as Christ is preached. I don't care if you got blue carpet, red carpet, chairs, pews, traditional, contemporary, right? I don't care if you pass out tracts, you go door to door, you do missions, short term, long term. Look, praise God if Christ is preached. That's his point. That's his point. Paul was inspired by the gospel. And more than that, he was obedient to the call to further the gospel that wants to be furthered. The gospel is of such a nature that it is meant to be furthered. The word of God is meant to run. Uh, look at the word that he uses there in chapter 3. He says, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord would what? He uses this Greek word, treko, that it would spread, or the word simply meaning run. This is the only time this word treko is used for a non-human object. So Paul is being very, very intentional about using this word. He is depicting the gospel in an image that you and I can relate to like a runner, like a marathon runner, like a sprinter. Ever seen somebody in a, the Olympics maybe and they're jogging, they're running to the very finish line and they're just exhausted. I've seen people get on their hands and knees, right, and cross the finish line in utter exhaustion. And it's almost like Paul wants to paint that picture for us, that the, the gospel is a, is, a, is a cause. The gospel is a, is a cause from heaven and that we would do well if we would promote the running of it the spreading of it the furtherance of it as the psalmist says brothers and sisters psalm 147 verse 15 he says he sends forth his commandments to the earth his word runs very swiftly see god is watching over His Word to perform it. 
Jeremiah 1.12. The Lord said to me, You have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. What does that mean exactly? It means that God is superintending His word. I don't know how many of you worked in construction. I spent some years in construction. I would have to work side by side with superintendents, some of the meanest people on planet Earth. Guys, you don't want to be anywhere near some of these guys that are foul as all can be. They're always angry, and they're, and they're never done telling you what to do. But one thing they do is that they oversee every aspect of any project, right? The buck stops at the superintendent's desk, okay? And in a sense, God is that sovereign superintendent over his word, making sure that his word is uh, performed, that his word actually accomplishes the purpose for which he sent it forth. The word of God has a purpose. The word of God is being sent out in order to redeem and to reconcile sinners to God. And... uh, Another amazing imagery. Look at, the, look at the next way he describes the Word. He says that the Word of God would spread rapidly and, watch this, be glorified. What an interesting way to talk about the Word of God, to talk about the Gospel, that the, that the Gospel would, be, would run and be glorified. What Paul is trying to say is that he wants the gospel to have its intended end. He wants to see the gospel do what it's meant to do. He wants to see the gospel convert the unconverted. He wants to see the gospel cause sinners to fall under the weight of repentance and conviction and to turn to Jesus Christ, forsaking their idols, forsaking their sin, and to trust in Christ. We see a glimpse of this, so please turn with me to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13 gives us a rare glimpse of the Word of God succeeding, that it succeeded, it did what it, what it was intended to do. It's beautiful. It was brought to its intended end. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. This is Paul's first missionary journey, and he begins to talk about his ministry to the Gentiles. He says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And an explanation, I think, here is given in the next clause. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. An explosive time of Gentile conversion. And how is it described? But that the word of the Lord was being glorified by these Gentiles. They were magnifying over the word of God. The way that you can translate this word, uh, glorified, back in First or, or Second Thessalonians three, the RSV translates it as triumph. It is not a good word-for-word translation, but as the commentaries bear out. It does convey the meaning, I think, that Paul's trying to get to. Paul wanted to see the word triumph. Does that describe us? Does that describe the disposition of our hearts? Do we want to see the word of God triumph over people's lives? In a dysfunctional family, in a teenager's life, in our church, in our evangelism, in our ministries, in our homes, in our personal sanctification? Do we want to see the Word of God triumph? Too many churches have covered the Word of God so that we, just to get to the Word of God, you got to peel away all of these layers that mean nothing to get back down to the core essence of what the Word of God is supposed to be and what it's supposed to be for. I want to look at the raw essence of God's Word. I want to gaze into the Word of God, and I want to say, God, let your Word be glorified, magnified, let it spread, let it triumph. Yes, yes, let it triumph in our lives. Paul was so adamant on seeing the Word of God triumph. Look at this comparative clause he uses here in the next phrase when he says, 
spreading rapidly and being glorified, he says, just as it did also with you. I love that. One of the reasons I like that is because Paul was not ashamed to say, God, just the, the success that I saw in Thessalonica, let it be that we can see that again. Let it be that I could see that same revival that took place, for example, in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. You get a, a good glimpse of it right here. You get a good glimpse of it right here. Let me read this to you. Or you can turn there. Acts 17, verses 1 through 4. What a picture of God's Word spreading and triumphing. Now, when they were traveling through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was, there was a synagogue of Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them for three Sabbaths, reasoning with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and had to rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. In other words, all sorts of different aspects of the community came out. They heard the Word of God, they came, they came under the preaching of the Word of God, and they were persuaded, of course, by the Spirit of God. They weren't persuaded by any of, of Paul's uh, sheer intellectual power. We know all that. It was God who persuaded him. It was God who caused the increase. It was God, as we learned early on in the book of Acts from chapter 2, it is God is the one who is adding the number daily, those who are being saved, and that has never ended. God is the one adding daily to the church those who are being saved. And that's what we're seeing right here. It's the word triumphing. So Paul is saying, look, just like it happened with you, let it be that it happens with us again. Oh, do, in other words, he's saying, do it again, Lord. Do the work again. Save like you saved me, right? How often we've prayed that. Oh God, please save the way that you saved me and brought me out of, out of darkness into light. Save in that way. Save my family. Save my children. Save my co-workers. Save my parents. Save the people in this church right now that are not in Christ. Save the children. Save any who are not in Christ. He saw God do some great things, amazing things in Thessalonica, and he was eager to see it duplicated. And we can certainly identify with our church. And this is not even in this service right here. This inauguration service, we can totally identify with that. Coming from a different church, being a pastor somewhere else, seeing what God has done. Uh, just to give you maybe a small example, I had a family come up to me once at church, and they said, your sermons through 1 John saved my marriage. And what I say is, do it again, Lord. Let it be that just as you worked in the past, you can work in the present and you will work in the future. Our God is big enough to do that. Our God is bigger. No matter what you go through, no matter how much adversity. Oh, and brothers and sisters, believe you me, we will have adversity in this church. We will be tested. We will be refined. We'll be tried. We're going to go through the fire. If you came here to escape pain, you're in the wrong place. The church is not a hall of exquisite, you know, it's not an art gallery with exquisite art you know, paintings, and you come and you just stand in awe of things. No, I think the church is actually more like a hospital with people on life support that are just barely hanging on, and if it wasn't for the grace of God, there we all go. We're gone, back into the gutter from which we came. No, the church is a church that is in a phase of militant proportions. 
We are not the church triumphant yet. Don't expect heaven on earth, okay? We're in these fallen, decaying, sinful bodies. We have the law of sin in us. Our outer man is perishing. You can try and try and try to preserve it. You know, my mom is real good about giving me vitamins. You need vitamins for this. You need vitamins for that. And I can just shovel vitamins as fast as I can. But guess what? At the end of the day, my body is still decaying. I still wake up with aches and pains. I still, you know, I, I won't go on preaching about my body. <laughs> this is nothing glorious anyway. But you get the point. But the thing that Paul was focusing on is, look, if God be for us, who can be against us? Let whatever adversity come what may. If God is on our side, who can possibly be against us? You can't lose when you have Almighty God on your side. And a true church, brothers and sisters, has God on its side. God is sovereign over this church. God is the Lord of this church. This is God's church. It's not my church. It's not Alan's church. It's not the deacon's church. This is not anybody's church. This is God's church. And our deepest prayer is, oh God, have your way in your church. Have your way in your church. Paul was also aware of the need for preservation. Look at what he says next. He prays not just then for this gospel centricity, but that gospel centricity has a context, and it is gospel adversity. This is the second part of his prayer, verse 2, and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. So apparently the Apostle Paul was experiencing some sort of, as he always was, some sort of really hazardous, dangerous opposition. There were, he calls them evil men. Just cut to the chase, right? He didn't say oh, people that tend to gossip. Evil men. <laughs> people that cause him trouble. And you see that all over. As, an, as a matter of fact, if you just keep reading there in Thessalonica, you go to Acts chapter 17, keep reading the section we just read. This glorious, and I think this is the way it works. This glorious triumph of the gospel, this glorious advancing of the gospel, spreading of the gospel, conversions, people being saved, and then adversity. Verse 5, but the Jews, they don't care if you're celebrating people's conversion. They don't care if you're all hopped up on your Christian joy. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. Wow. We are far from that, brothers and sisters. We are so, oh man, American Christians, we should take the greatest risks in the world. We are so safe. Anybody, you know, we're out sharing our faith, doing open-air preaching, whatever. Somebody gets out of line, we could call 911. Paul couldn't call 911 on these Jews. Look, they excite this, this crowd, this mob violence mentality. He says, and attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they, when they didn't find them, they began dragging Jason and some, of, some, and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world, I like the King James, those who have, uh, uh, those who have I'm supposed to know the King James, those who have uh, uh, turned the world upside down, right? I love that. Let that be said, at least in principle, right, to our church. Let, the, let Heritage Grace turn the world upside down for the gospel, here comes those who have upset the whole world. They've come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and others, they released them. But don't you see the opposition? Don't you see the pattern? Success. And after the success, the test. Right? Success. The gospel went forth. The gospel was preached. Evangelism was done. People were converted. Lives were changed. And then, but the Jews were filled with jealousy, envy, right? They stirred up the crowds, hating the gospel. The gospel ministry will always be opposed. Let's move on to the second aspiration, and that is this. The second aspiration is that we would have a God-centered Confidence. 
a God-centered confidence. Look at verse 3. But the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you, that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. You see, so Paul had this confidence, and it was in the Lord. That's the way that he saw it. He saw it in connection to the Lord. He knew God was faithful. He knew that God was all-wise, all-powerful, all-sovereign, that He was in charge, that He was going to take care of His people. He knew that they were under the blanket of God's protection because they were in the Lord you know, that is a beautiful thing. And oh, I pray that we would treasure, experience, and know that and be warned by that. That it is only in Christ that you can experience the canopy of God's protection. You get outside of Christ and you are exposed to the full range of satanic influence. As John says in 1 John 5.21 or 5.19, the whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. It's only when you take refuge in Christ that you can escape the defilement of the world, the prince of the power of the air that moves around the sons of disobedience here and there. It's only in Christ that you can experience God's canopy of protection. There's no better place to be than to be safe in Christ, to be secure in Him. Paul wants to remind us that just as he was not alone in the ministry, he expected to be rescued from evil men, but that God also would be there in a more general way, therefore, to protect the church from the evil one. In other words, Paul was praying for protection over the church from satanic influence. We know... Again, according to 1 John 5.18, John says, We know that no one who is born of God sins. That doesn't mean you will never sin, but that means that you do not persist in a lifestyle of sin anymore. The dominion of sin has been broken. The presence of sin goes on. But the dominion of sin, the power of sin has been broken over your life. You do not have to sin anymore. You do not have to. But he who was born of God keeps, uh, God keeps him. Who, excuse me, he who was born of God keeps him. Boy, that doesn't sound right, right? We know that the one, this is the way John talks. You talk about, man, when I was preaching First John, constantly going back and forth, rereading John, because he reads in such a, 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 such a unique way. It's almost like he learned nothing from Paul in his didactic, logical mind, right? He likes to speak in abstracts. He says, we know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. So you see that? God, because he has placed his holy seed in your heart, will protect you and keep you from the evil, evil one so that he will not touch you. Remember, the devil wanted to touch Peter. Remember that? Jesus told, but Peter didn't know. Peter was just, you know, he's blind to the spiritual realm. But Jesus, how frightening is that? When the Son of God himself tells you, I have, I have firsthand knowledge that Satan himself desires you, Peter. He desires to sift you like wheat. Just like chaff, just do away with you. But he says, I have prayed for you. That's the type of keeping we're talking about. On the basis of Christ's intercessory work, mediatory work, we are kept by the power of God. And this is something all throughout Scripture, brothers and sisters, that God preserves us. He will keep us. Jude, verse 24, Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. With great joy. Look at what Peter says. If you go to 1 Peter chapter 1, an incredible statement there on, our, on the believer's confidence, his protection that we have by virtue of being uh, born again. That also is credited to God. 
Even if we begin in verse 3, we can see the whole progression from first to last. It is God's job to keep us. Praise the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again. Notice, according to His great mercy, not according to your great goodness. Not according to how much you go to church or how much you've been baptized or how much you've said this about the Lord or how much you, you respect the man upstairs. Forget all that. The basis of your, birth, of your new birth is the sovereign mercy of God. The mercy of God. He says He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. You know anything else that sure in this life? I don't. You know anything else that secure in this life? I don't. You don't need blue chip, you know, uh, you know, you don't need a CD fund. I don't know, you know, you want to go put your money in the stock market. There is nothing as secure. There's no assurance. There's no foundation like God's salvation. We are protect. Excuse me. He goes on. He res, we are. We have this hope reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. And then Peter will go on to say what he means by that is that you may obtain the outcome of your faith. That is the salvation of your soul. It is God's job to bring us in. It's God, God's job to bring you there to the place of new birth, and it's God jo God's job to keep you there. What an incredible assurance that is. This is why Paul quickly shifts to the other side of the Christian life, from preservation to perseverance. Both are true. Look at how he shifts over. He uh, he talks about his confidence concerning them. Isn't that amazing? We have confidence in the Lord concerning you. But notice he does not say we have confidence in you, right? He doesn't end it there. He doesn't say it like that. He could have, but he doesn't. He's smarter than that. Theology is more complicated than that, <laughs> right? He doesn't just say we're confident about you guys. He doesn't even say we have confidence concerning you. But there's a double prepositional phrase here that's very important. It's crucial. Paul's confidence is not simply in relationship to them concerning you, but literally, Paul's confidence, confidence is in relationship to the Lord. It's only with that great and grandiose qualifier in the Lord, because outside of the Lord, we have no confidence in you or about you. If you are not in the Lord, if you are not in relationship to Christ then this confidence would evaporate. It is only so much as we know that there is a relationship, the Lord and you, that we can be confident concerning anyone's faith. Right? So many people have told me over the years that they're Christians or that they believe they're going to heaven or that they think they're good enough to go to heaven. But when you get down to it, you boil it all down and you figure you take away all of the religious facades and you break it down to, are you in the Lord? <laughs> Do you truly possess salvation? Is there evidence? Oh, I don't go to church. I do my own thing. Oh, I don't, you know, I don't read my Bible. I don't pray. I don't fellowship with other Christians. They're all hypocrites anyway. So why hang around Christians? I don't go to church because I've been hurt so many times. When you start hearing those types of things, my friends, that's bad evidence. That is bad evidence of a person's profession. What did Jesus say? A bad tree cannot produce good fruit. You can't do it. And much as you try, much as you try to impress people with all of your religiosity, all of the moralism that you can muster up, I helped my church with this. I've helped my church with that. I've gone on short-term mission trips. I've dug wells for people. I helped construct a church. I serve in churches. It doesn't matter if the realest thing in your whole life has not taken place, which is your own personal conversion. 
Without that, there is nothing. There is really nothing. We should also notice this. The content of Paul's confidence concerning the church. The first thing, the first thing we should say is that it surrounds the church's conformity to the apostles' doctrine. You notice that he says that? He's speaking about his confidence about them, that they are doing and will continue to do, and then he uses this phrase, what we command. What's amazing about this, there's a lot of exegetical issues that are here that are very precious. One thing is that Paul could construct this sentence any way he wants, right? Some of you that know a little bit about Greek, you don't have to put Greek in any one order. You can put it on any order you want. This is what's different about English and other languages. You can put the word, let's see if I can do this a little bit, but as it stands in the Greek text, the phrase that you see in your Bible, that you are doing, doesn't start that way in the Greek. The very first word in that clause is the word command. He did that on purpose to say the most important thing is what we command. Paralon genomen, what we command, that's what's important. So he exalts that, he, he raises the apostolic tradition before them, and he says, this is what we want you to continue in, concerning these things. What things? The apostles' doctrine. Stay in that. If you don't stay in that, you can stay in anything else you want. You can stay in all sort of superficial things. But if you don't stay in that, if you don't stay in the apostles' teaching, it doesn't matter what you stay in. It doesn't matter what you try to impress people with. Psychology, philosophy, self-help, therapy. I've got about 15 things here. I don't care if you're patriotic about your country. I don't care if you're just your mind is so wrapped with politics and you know, conspiracy theories. Oh, I meet Christians like this, right? The, their gospel is to prove to you that Obama is the Antichrist. <laughs> no. Our gospel is about Christ. So we need, to be, we need to be vigilant that we are doing what Romans 6.17 says. That we, that we are becoming conformed to that standard of teaching that we received. That's talking about the apostles' doctrine. The deposit that, 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 that Paul told, told Timothy about. Stay faithful to the deposit. You've been entrusted with the riches of Christ, the glories of Christ, the mysteries of Christ. Be a good steward, Timothy. Here, bear them. Be careful with them. They're precious doctrines. So don't go scattering around for other things. Stay in what we command. Stay in it. Secondly, not only does he focus on what we command, but there are two important texts, or excuse me, two important tenses here. Notice what the text says. He says not only that you are doing, but he also says and will continue to do it, right? So he's not just looking back and saying, oh, you did well at one point, therefore you're okay. You know? I think sometimes we tend to reward ourselves like that, right? Oh, there was a time when I was on fire for God. Have you met people that have said things like that? Have you said things like that? There was a time when I used to really pray, man. You don't even know. Right? I had a guy tell me one time, I used to share my faith every day, man. And the question always coming back is, but what are you doing now? What are you doing today? This is the gospel, that God gives you the ability to have present faith in Christ. Okay? Christianity is not looking back on the fumes of yesteryear. Christianity is not looking back at the great spirituality you once had and then boasting about it, like somebody boasts about their kid's football game or something. No, my friends... We are to always maintain faith in Christ. Now, just like you always have, but today. And that we would go on and on and on into that. And that that could never, ever change. We can never change that. So we've looked at gospel-centered, God-centered, and now lastly, the last aspiration is Christ-centered, a Christ-centered church. And we see this from Paul's closing prayer in verse 5. He says, 
May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. That's a sermon in and of itself, folks. That is a sermon in and of itself. Paul wants them to revel, to revel in the glories of Christ. How do you know if you're not a Christian? You can't revel in the glories of Christ. How do you know if you're not a Christian? You have no taste bud for holy things. There's no relish. You don't love it. You have, don't have a taste for it. it is not, the Word of God is not like honey to the mouth, right? You're just sort of indifferent. The wor- one of the worst gospels in our, in, in our life, definitely in our times, is moralism. Moralism. That is such a wicked, false gospel that is being propagated all over the place today. That it's just swapping out a set of routines that you used to do with all of the bad movies, the bad language, with all of the the nasty ways that you treated your wife and all of the things that you used to do at work with the boys. And now you're just kind of sort of taking on a whole new uh, group of routines, right? You're just kind of swapping out one moral, one system of morals for another. And you just kind of do different stuff now. Now we watch the clean stuff. We watch Courageous. Right? We listen to Christian radio now, and that means we're in Christ. No, my friends, Jesus said, you must be born again. All of these external peripheral things will never get you there. So, Christ wants, or Paul wants, the church to revel in the glories of Christ. Why do I say that? And you're probably looking at the verse going, where is, he, where is he drawing this from? Where is he talking about reveling in the glories of Christ? Well, I'm focusing mainly on that phrase. When he directs their hearts, two things. The love of God and then the steadfastness of Christ. A very perplexing, if you do any study on this passage right there, a very perplexing set of phrases. Okay, this is a grammatical issue. Now, I don't want to sit up here and just teach you grammar, but it's the difference between saying the love that God has for you or the love that you have for God. It's a difference between a genitive, subjective or objective, and it works both ways for the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Is it Christ's steadfastness? Or is it the steadfastness that Christ gives you? You see? Or is it both? Boy, now I just kind of set myself up for failure. What am I going to pick? Because it's hard. These grammatical issues that commentaries go both ways and blah, blah, blah. I tend to think that when Paul does this, especially because he does it in a prayer, I don't think he wrote this in a prayer the way he wrote it so that you could get all tripped up on grammar. I think he's saying, yes, it's both and. It's yes, it's God's love for you, which results instantaneously in your love for God. And yes, it's the, the, the steadfastness of Jesus Christ, or the, word, the, way, the way that you could translate it, hupomene, endurance, perseverance, the endurance of Jesus Christ. So what do I think he's trying to say? I think he's trying to say, look at the perseverance of Jesus Christ. Look at his endurance. May God direct your heart to contemplate the persevering nature of Jesus Christ because it will produce perseverance in your life. When you look under the author and finisher of your faith, it will produce perseverance. When you think about Jesus' faithfulness, when you think of His obedience and how He was so willing to humble Himself all the way down to the point of death, even death on a cross, it will produce in you the same humility that Paul wants to see in us. Philippians chapter 2, that's what he does. After he exhorts the church, look, be of the same mind, be of the same purpose, be of one spirit, right? Intent on the same purpose, be together, same mind, unity. How does he prove that? Telling us don't regard you know, your interests above the interests of someone else. How do you prove that? by reveling on the character, on the person and work of Jesus Christ, by looking to Jesus who had this mind that he laid aside his glory, he humbled himself, and on he goes to the, to the, 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 the example that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how a church 
will remain faithful. This is how a church will be healthy, is by having these three things, that we be gospel-centered in everything that we do, that our priorities be surrounded around the gospel, that we be God-centered in our ministry, that we be God-centered in uh, the way that we pray, the way that we do what we do, and that we be Christ-centered in our perseverance, that we be Christ-centered in our lives. Uh, It's so important to have a healthy church, brothers and sisters. That is my job as a pastor, is to try to get the church to conform more and more and more into a healthy image, right? The image of Christ. What did Paul tell the the Galatians? He says, I am in labor pains. I am in agony. I am in anguish until I see Christ formed in you. Until you start taking upon more and more and more of the character and nature of Jesus Christ in your lives individually and in the church corporately. Right? So I will too. I will be in anguish until we can say, yes, we will be like Christ. Yes, we will follow his imitation. Yes, we will strive for the fullness of Christ. Let's close by going to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, just to remind us of what Paul, because Paul wanted this for all the churches. He wanted all the churches to look like this, to grow up into what he called the fullness of Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, he says, after everything he talks about in terms of God gifting the church, giving the church proper teachers, proper ministers, giving us prophets, apostles, everything giving us foundational things like that. Of course, for today, pastors, teachers only, not apostles and prophets. But the point is maturity, maturity. When Christ has really had his way in the church, the result should be spiritual and doctrinal maturity. It must be. It must be. Verse 14, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. You are a joint, and if you are at Heritage Grace, you will supply something. There will be no one standing around. There will be no spectators in the house of God. We will each supply what God has given us to supply according to the proper working of each individual part. See, you're a part, you're an individual part, and you have a proper working and a malfunctioning uh, way of working, right? You're either going to malfunction in the church or you're going to work properly. Too many malfunctioning Christians in the church. Too many unconcerned about prayer, unconcerned about serving, unconcerned about helping out and reaching out and fulfilling all the one another's of Scripture. Too many malfunctioning Christians. Paul envisions, and this is what I've titled this whole passage, Paul's utopian view of the church. This is is almost as Paul is saying, if I could have it any way, this is what it would look like, man. Every joint supplying something, right? Every part functioning properly. What a vision for the church. He says, by the proper working of each individual part, it causes the growth of the body. That's the point. For the building up of itself in love. See, starts with the body, ends with the body, right? It is a self-replenishing organism. We're pumping life into the body so that body has life. Body has life, it will pump life back into the body. body has, and we just pump life into the body and it doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. After doing all this, Paul would rejoice over the whole church. Once the church understood that its true aspirations, what, the true, what its true aspirations are, he could pray 
that they would be comforted and strengthened. And I think a glorious way to end is to read Paul's own words. Just if you go back up to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I know I said I was going to close with Ephesians, I'm sorry. 2 Thessalonians 2, 16, because he already prayed something for them. So this is a glorious way just to cap it all off. Look at what he says. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace. Man, beloved, read that over again. Search those things. Dwell on that. Those are some of the most beautiful promises afforded to us in Scripture. Eternal comfort, good hope by grace. Look at this. May He comfort and strengthen your hearts. And then again, Paul, with the perfect balance in every good work and word. Right? Ergon and lagon. Every good work and word. So we got to have the good works and we got to have the good words, right? Just that beautiful mixture of Paul, light and heat, heart and head, right? Uh, what else? Uh, you know, taking in and reaching out. Okay, I'm getting too corny there, but um, you get the point. He wants us to be well-rounded believers. He wants us to be saturated in these things. So let's pray. Worship team will come up and close us in a final song. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, heritage grace will only succeed so far as you are willing to bless it. And so, God, we confess and we acknowledge that we are utterly dependent on you. Father, please give us the grace that we need. We are not adequate for these things. I pray that you would make our church a refuge. God, I pray that you would use my feeble efforts of week after week delving into the mysteries of Christ, serving up the riches, the unfathomable riches of Christ, I pray, Lord, that you would be pleased simply to bless your word, breathed on your word. Be pleased to blow with a mighty rushing wind new life into our hearts, into this church, and all around us as you use us for your glory as we further the gospel. Please be glorified, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.